Well, good morning, church. This is the uh, first time that I have ever been told to do a uh, wardrobe change in the middle of a service and put on a coat because my shirt was buzzing the screens. So uh, get to dress up a little more for you. So my name's Phil Shields. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Uh, we in Bible Church, I want to welcome you this morning in the room. If you're worshiping with us online, welcome. So glad you're here. If you're checking us out for the first time, uh, visiting, so glad. Welcome. Uh, thanks for checking us out. We would love to have you make this place a part of your family. I'll be honest with you, we're a congregation that is not perfect. But we are a congregation and a church that is growing to love God, love one another, love our neighbors and love the nations as best as we can as disciples of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to take a dive into Matthew 19, and I'm going to tell you this is not a comfortable piece of Scripture. Uh, this is a hard piece of Scripture, and it's my prayer that you and I will be challenged to reassess kind of some things in our lives and reassess our hearts um, as we come before the Lord and say, have your way in our life. Now, last week, Pastor Hannibal was here and he started chapter 19 with you. And uh, we saw Jesus talking about uh, marriage, divorce, and singleness. And if you remember with me, Hannibal got up here and he actually pleaded for you to feel bad for him. He said something like, you know, you probably are scared because it's such a hard text to deal with, you know, to deal with marriage and divorce and singleness. And he wanted you to feel bad for him. And you know what? That's, that's really lame. And so what he did is he decided, well, this week I'm going to let Phil preach on the subject of money. <laughs> so we all know who has the harder task. And I, I expect you to write him emails saying he was a wimp, not dealing with it, all of that. Well, in all seriousness, we come to Matthew 19. And Jesus finishes this declaration on relationships, and he spends time talking about that. And right after he is discussing that, he ends up uh, having this situation where people are walking up to him. They're coming to him, and they're holding the hands of these little children, and they bring him, these kids right before him, wanting him to place his hands on them, to bless them, to pray over them. And it's a, it's a strange little section that Matthew kind of has this section on uh, marriage and divorce and singleness and then puts like these two verses in that kind of splits two different scenes and it's a, a fascinating thing that's taking place. But he ends up, uh, he, he makes these declarations and there, there's some bold statements that come out here. But when we look at our whole text, what we have to understand is that there is a question that kind of rises to the top 
to get us to understand what is going on here. And that question is simply this. How do we enter the kingdom of heaven? Or how do we gain eternal life? How does eternal life become a part of our earthly life here? And so there's a simple principle that I think we need to uh, remember, we need to practice, and we need to review each and every day because there's other things that come in to battle for our thinking. The principle is this. Eternal life in Jesus means you trust in him and him alone. Let me say that again. Uh, Eternal life in Jesus means you trust in him and him alone. Not in anything else. Only Jesus. So we're going to look at it through three lenses. We're going to look at trusting Jesus unconditionally. Then we're going to look at trusting Jesus alone. And then we're going to look at trusting Jesus transformed. And we'll see kind of how this plays out in the text. So let's start with trusting Jesus unconditionally. Look at uh, this section, these two verses that kind of pop in here. uh, Verses 13 and 14. Now, people are bringing the kids. And they come up to him. Now look at what Jesus says in verse 14. He says, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, here's what we have to understand. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the eternal ruling of Jesus in our life today, but it also is the eternal ruling of Jesus in our life for all eternity. So there's this aspect of eternal life that's going on here. And Jesus says, let them come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, why does he say that? We'll jump back to verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them and look at what's happening. But the disciples rebuked them. The 12 that were closest with Jesus are sitting there rebuking people saying, hey, you you can't do this. Jesus doesn't have time for this. This is not what he should be doing right now. So, you know, you need to get your kids out of here. I can't believe you're even thinking about this right now. Now, what's interesting is the disciples are are living very culturally. And the reason I say that is because kids were viewed with low status in society. Very low status. In fact, Greco-Roman law actually gave parents the, uh, the right to discard or abandon unwanted infants and just you know get rid of them and given the high mortality rate some argue that parents were actually uh, encouraged to not get attached to their children so kids had like low status in society and the disciples are reacting and Jesus flips their thinking upside down In fact, just a a chapter earlier in chapter 18, Jesus is saying, hey, children have status. I value children. He, in fact, he says children are to be viewed as a blessing. And so in chapter 19, in verse 14, he ends up using certain words. Let. Come. Do not hinder. Belongs. 
These are, are incredible terms of saying, Jesus is basically saying, get out of the way. Don't, don't like look at anything else. Get out of the way and let the kids come to me. He's, he's painting a picture that his kingdom, the eternal life that he offers, is actually an eternal life and a blessing that is not just specific to kids, but it's for a group that we can say they are the unlikely in society. He's saying, my kingdom is for those that don't seem to be good enough. Now, why, why do children come up here? Well, I think we have to ask the question, what do children actually bring to the kingdom of heaven? There's three things that I thought of, and um, it's, the first one is this. Children aren't mature. They bring immaturity to the kingdom of heaven. Now, why do I say that? I say that because, you know, they don't have a lot of life experience. They, they haven't been trained up in a lot of things. And so these little kids that were holding the hands of their parents were coming in, and Jesus saying, you, the immature, you belong here. Now, the other thing that children bring is that children are needy. Some of you are going through this right now. Your kids need you for everything. To dress them, to feed them, to make sure they're up in the morning. And if you're doing that for a 32-year-old in your home, you got issues. But what is happening here is we find that children are needy. They need adults to provide security, nourishment, and training. But children also bring something else. They bring a voiceless mouth. Children need a voice. See, parents and adults, those in authority over children, are also the voice for the voiceless. They are the ones that are bringing them to Jesus. And so whenever we look at this, we have to go, well, what is childlike faith? Why is this important here? And it's because children come and they set aside their will because they don't even know what a will is at that point. And they're teachable and they want to just experience life. And they come before Jesus and all they know is that they belong and they're accepted. And Jesus is saying, that's what is so important. Children are teachable, and they have a humility about them. They trust. My oldest, Gavin, when he was little, uh, we were at a hotel, and uh, we were at the swimming pool. He was totally active, just a little runt at the time, and he was running around, and Gavin had some issues. He had issues of anxiety getting into the pool. He also had some vision issues, so like when he looked at the water and the water was moving, it was just, it caused some cloudiness for his vision, and, but he knew I was in the water. And so he would run around and I would be calling out to him and say, hey Gav, buddy, jump in, I'm right here, I'll catch you. And he would run up to the corner, he'd put his toes curling around the side, get ready to jump, and then back away. And then he would come up again, and I kept calling and calling and saying, buddy, come on, you can trust me. You can trust me. Just, just jump in. I'm going to catch you. And eventually he came to the side, and he leaps into my arms, and he jumps in to the kingdom of the pool. Why did he do that? 
because he was teachable. He was humble and just said, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust dad is going to catch me and to hold me, to take care of me. He brought nothing to that. See, Jesus is saying that it's the same way with his kingdom. He's saying you have nothing to offer except to just jump and to trust that I'm here for you. And there's some of you in here that you are sitting here and you're wrestling and you're saying, Phil, you have no idea what's in my life. You have no idea what I've done. There is no way that Jesus will catch me. And I'm here to tell you, you're wrong. Jesus is saying, let them come to me. You belong here. My kingdom belongs to those such as these. And so he has a kingdom for the unlikely. And my question is, is have you surrendered yourself to him today? Are you going to? See, he's telling us that to trust him, we trust him unconditionally, just like a child. But that then leads to this second part. It leads to this aspect of trusting Jesus alone. See, Jesus puts, or Matthew puts this, the verses 13, 14, and 15, like right there, and then jumps immediately to this, this next scene that takes place. And it, it has the, these verses. It starts in verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now notice the, the words on the screen that are in yellow, he's asking, what is the good thing, the good deed? He's saying, what must I do? For what? For eternal life. Now what's interesting is the Gospel of Matthew ends up saying that this is just a man that, that came up to Jesus. But this story is in two other Gospels. It's, uh, it's in the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke it actually says that this guy is a ruler, that he has some form of authority. And then if you go to Mark 10, it says that this man, this ruler, ended up running up to Jesus and he actually falls to his knees in front of him. Now notice, he does this, and in Matthew, he calls him teacher, which means that he came up, he fell on his knees in front of him saying, you have authority, calls him teacher, which means that Jesus has authority. This guy views Jesus as somebody that has tremendous spiritual authority over all things, and he comes with this question. Now, to be honest, when we look at this, this is a, a, a beautiful thing. What's interesting is it's not until later in this section that we find out that this man was a young man. The Greek word that's used there for, for young can actually refer to someone that is anywhere from 20 to 40, which makes 40-year-olds really glad that they're still young. It's a biblical truth. So, we see this guy come up, but later in the text, it doesn't only say that he's young, it says that he's rich. 
So this guy had to, to come and, and to look. And when we look at him and we kind of paint this full picture of him, if we are honest, we would say, this is the type of guy that we want in our church. He seems to be humble enough to say, I am missing something in my life. He's being, he wants to be teachable. He's also somebody that seems to have held to a lot of Jewish religious society and he has held to a lot of things. And so this is a guy of moral excellence and we go, this is the type of person that we would love to have in our church. We also look at this and go, just like Jewish society, if he's rich, it means that this is a manifestation of God's acceptance of him uh, because God poured blessing on him. So that must mean that God has great things in store for him. And to be honest, in the American church, we go, that's the type of person we want in our church. So when we look at this, we go, what's happening? The, uh, we actually operate the same way that the Jews did. And so this man asked, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And he asked it because he wants to know, what does he have to do so that once he has done whatever that deed is, he will know that he has eternal life? He knows that that has happened. See, he believes that he can do something to gain God's favor or or feels like he owes God so that when he does this good deed, God owes him eternal life. So the question is asked, and in some ways he displays a fear of God, a recognition of Jesus having authority and of saying, like, there's something missing in my life. And the problem is, is that the question he asks is only a good question. It's not a perfect question. See, he, he asked this question, and the words that are used is deed and do. And notice the words that he uses are in direct contrast to verses 13, 14, and 15. There we find the humility of a child just coming and trusting. And then from 16 on, we see a guy who is thinking that he's got to do something. He's got to carry something into the kingdom of heaven. He's got to bring something to the table. But look at verse 17. Jesus answers him. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, if you read this quickly, you can, go, you can look at it and and say, okay, is Jesus denying his own goodness? And that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is perfect, sinless. But what Jesus is doing is he is starting a dialogue with this guy, and he's starting to say, okay, I want to push this man and us this morning as, as readers to consider what we and what this guy thinks about God and Jesus Christ. To, to push us to understand who he is. See, this leads him and us this morning to do a reassessment of what we truly believe. What do we believe about eternal life? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about goodness? 
Because Jesus is pretty clear here. He says there is only one who is good, meaning that that good is perfect, and that is God Almighty. So he's trying to say, I want you to probe into your life and and to look at this to say, why aren't you satisfied with the, the normal Jewish answer? Why are you seeking more? And this, this is where Jesus wants the standard of divine goodness to be seen by this man who is seeking answers. And he wants divine goodness to be seen by you and me so that we understand the full glory of who he is. So Jesus tests this man's so-called goodness. And he responds, and if you look, uh, as he, he responds, it's with this keep the commandments. So the man says, which ones? Now, the man asks this out of curiosity. Well, which ones should I do? But this is where we start to see a problem in this guy's life. The moment he asks which ones is the moment that we understand that he sees some of the Ten Commandments as lesser than the others. We do the same thing. That sin isn't as bad. It's not as bad as the other ones. We try to put a value on the commandments, so some are, you got to really keep some, but others, it's all right, you can get away with it. And so when we look at this, he ends up saying, well, which ones? Which ones should I be doing? And this is where Jesus confronts him with some things, and look at what Jesus points out. He ends up talking about these commandments. In verse 18, he says, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we're not going to do a test this morning because I'm going to tell you exactly what those commandments are. But when we start looking at this, Jesus does something really interesting, and he says, he gives him commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9, and then jumps back to commandment 5. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus 19.18. And it's a verse that is used all through the New Testament, where uh, many New Testament writers uh, refer to this. Jesus refers to this, love your neighbor as yourself. Keep these. Now, why is this important? This guy ends up saying, well, guess what? I do that. I've done that. I keep all those. He's thinking he's doing all right. But the reason Jesus goes there is because these are the, the commandments that have to do with external behaviors. It's, these are things that you and I can actually evaluate in one another. It's pretty easy. Like, you know, if Hannibal and I are, are here, we can evaluate, did you murder? It's pretty easy. It's an external thing we can look at. All of these have to do with uh, these external actions and, and how we act and, and lead in our life. And what, what is happening is what this guy is doing is he is real, he's looking at this and he's going, I am all about that. He is all about looking right. 
And so Jesus ends up taking this young, wealthy ruler of a man to the inner place where all values are formed to the heart. See, he ends up, this guy says, well, I I do all those things. And Jesus is saying, well, we got to go a step further. See, your heart will reveal the areas that you most cherish and value in your life. If you're willing to do the hard work this morning, to do some assessment of your life, you will look at your heart and you will say, what is sitting on the throne of my heart? Is it actually Jesus and Jesus alone or is it Jesus plus something? Is it your bank account? Your success? The job you have? How obedient your kids are? What the house you own? Whatever it may be. What is actually seated at the throne of your heart? Because Jesus is saying, we got to go there. And the reason I know that is because then Jesus tells the man, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now here's what's fascinating. It is highly possible that this guy with moral excellence held very closely to Jewish law and at different times he would give alms to the poor. He would give offering. And he would do that, and he would take care of things. But what Jesus ends up saying, it's the only place that we find Jesus saying to get rid of everything. And he ends up saying, you have got to sell all of it, and then come follow me. Why would Jesus do that? It's because he's simply looking at this and saying to this young, rich ruler, you forgot the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. He points him right to the place of the God that rules his heart, and it's his money. This guy is is cherishing his money And it's gripping him incredibly tight. See, his wealth was his identity. And often when you have wealth, your identity becomes a place where you want power. You want power to rule over others. It becomes your purpose. And he found his meaning there. And so Jesus ends up saying, no, 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 go do this and then come, follow me. And why is he saying that? See, Jesus is saying, I want your dream of wealth. I want that dream, that will of wealth. I want that. I want you to surrender it to me. I want you to give that to me because this eternal life you seek demands more than you thought. It's going to demand more than you thought, but it's going to offer you more than you could ever dream of. And Jesus is saying, give it to me. See, the people of Jesus' day saw riches as God's blessing. (laughs) But what we have to understand when we look at this text is that wealth often pulls apart 
the place in our life where we look at self-sacrifice. It paints the picture that the world offers more than the kingdom of God. And the more that we go into our wealth, it freezes our minds so that the realities of heaven are far from our thoughts and we forget completely about hell. Wealth brings self-indulgence, self-reliance, self-importance, and self-security. It is all about the self. I read this week, someone wrote, it's easier to trust in it if you have it to trust in. You might be going, well, man, I am so glad because I am not wealthy. And I got to tell you, if we are sitting here in our country, in a church like this, We are wealthy compared to the rest of the world. And so we got to ask the question, how is wealth grabbing us? How is our bank account grabbing us? See, what we end up seeing is that the man turned and he ends up walking away sad. And why was that? It's because for him, and I got to say it, because for some of us, In this room, we come seeking eternal life and we are fine with Jesus, but we always feel like it needs to be Jesus plus our bank account. Jesus plus my good deeds. Jesus plus this. And Jesus has already taught us with the children that it's none of those. See, the kingdom of God, this eternal life, comes in and what it wants to do is it radically wants to transform your life to make it new so that you see the kingdom turned upside down the way that Jesus does. It's interesting, in our men's uh, Bible studies, we're studying the book of Exodus in the, this past week, and I, I should say our women's Bible study is also doing that. Um, And this past week, for the men, we were in Exodus 32. You might not know what's happening in Exodus 32, but it's basically 40 days after the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt. And they're gathered by the mountain of God, and Moses is up on the mountain. All the Israelites are waiting for Moses to come down, and they get crazy. They've, like, lost their minds. And they start going, okay, we... I don't know when Moses is coming back down, but if God doesn't continue to help us, let's at least create a God just so we have some security. So what did they do? They created an idol of a cow. It doesn't seem like it's a a big deal, but they create this cow and they build this altar. And what's fascinating is in Exodus 32, In verses 5 through 6, they've built this, and then this text comes up. And it says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, Why is Exodus 32 coming into Matthew 19? Look at what they did. They decided to have the cow and an altar to God and say, we can do this together. 
They said their idol plus Jesus, their idol plus God will save us. And we can look back on the book of Exodus and go, oh, the Israelites, they were so foolish. Why did they do this? That's just so nuts. And we forget to do the assessment of our own hearts. And when we do, we realize we do the same thing. See, we build those idols of the treasures of our wealth or our possessions. And and Jesus is saying, I want to come and I want to radically transform your life. That's why we got to remember that eternal life in Jesus means you trust in him and him alone. Nothing else. So the text goes on. And Jesus tells his disciples that it's hard for someone rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he uses uses this picture of a camel going through the eye of a needle and how hard it is. And the disciples are completely shocked. They just can't understand this. They're looking at this going, okay, Jesus welcomed those that we rebuked. And then the one that they thought was a for sure and likely to be in heaven walks away. And they're going, who can be saved? which is the question that we have this morning. And that's where we have to see that trusting Jesus transforms. Transformed our our thinking. So in verse 26 of Matthew 19, it, it says this, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, this is our verse. It's a key verse to our understanding that our idols such as money, make us think everything is possible through our human work. That the better we become as humans, we can gain more favor in God's eyes. And that reality is just false. And Peter is just looking at this. It strikes Peter, and he's just like, I just can't believe this. And he wonders what's going to happen to them, that they gave up everything to follow him. And, well, what about us? And so Peter asks this question in verse 27. He says, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now, Peter, if he was smart, should have said just What will happen to us? He should have never gone to, well, what will there be for us? Because then, all of a sudden, what that does is it, it paints this picture and it shows us that he is focusing, that what he is doing and the good things that he does is for a reward. And it's not because he is in awe of who Jesus is. Peter is like smacked in the face and he's looked at this and um, it's this thing of, well, why do we do the things that we do? Are we trying to do this to gain more favor? And he's looking at this going, well, I thought if I did more that you would love me more, Jesus. But those who serve for the motivation of obedience and adoration, they aren't going to be first in the kingdom. Verse 30 ends up saying, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Jesus is saying, what you think is actually the opposite. 
how you think people are going to enter the kingdom. This way, it's actually opposite. And so we have to look at, at Matthew 19. We've got to struggle through this. It's why author, American author Mark Twain said this, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bothers me. It's the parts that I do understand. I mean, Jesus is speaking to us and smacking it in our face. He's saying that it is going to be hard and confrontational. That salvation comes, but the hard reality is, is that your money, your good deeds aren't going to have an impact. The only impact is the cross of Christ. That's the thing that's going to welcome you into the kingdom. And so salvation Reward and goodness aren't gained through your works, through your money, through how you're raising your kids, through your human achievement, but they are uh, gained through the goodness of God and Christ's work on the cross. So how do you see the cross? Because how you view the cross is where your trusting is going to be transformed. That it was only the work that Jesus did by going there. Him surrendering himself so that we could eventually surrender our will, our dreams, our bank account, and everything so that he creates those dreams to be even better than we thought. Now here's the crazy thing. Matthew 19, the problem isn't money. The problem is Anything that is sitting on the throne of your heart. It's your surrender. And so how are you surrendering to him today? What is it that you are looking at that you're like, man, I gotta, I gotta really surrender this? Because here's the thing. If you're rich, beware. But if you're poor, beware. And just so we cover this, if you're middle class, beware. <laughs> Jesus is saying, whatever idol, you can't bring that to the kingdom. you got to surrender it to me. Because eternal life in Jesus means trust in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. And as Peter's trust gained new insight that day, I pray that our trust would also gain new insight. I pray that we would wrestle in and we would wrestle with our heart and our desires today. I pray that your spirit would come and, and convict us. And, and for some, we need to wrestle so much that we surrender our life to you today, that we become somebody that is known as a child of the king. And so for those that are, are working, trying to work for salvation, I pray that you would break down those walls today and that they would come and enter your kingdom in the most beautiful way with your arms wide open saying, you belong. And for those of us that have already done that, and the evil one is working on us right now, I pray that you would open our eyes to the idols that we have allowed to take grip in our life and that we would be reminded 
that this salvation, this dwelling with you, this living for you is done through you and you alone. Thank you for being a good God. And thank you for guiding us in our life. Have your way in our hearts. It's your name I pray. Amen.